This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Introducing Royal Caribbean's newest ship, Icon of the Seas, the ultimate family vacation. The ultimate six slides, eight neighborhoods, zero compromise vacation. The ultimate never done that, can't wait to do it vacation. The ultimate chillin' by a different pool every day of the week vacation. This is the Icon of Vacations. Icon of the Seas, arriving in 2024. Book today. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli Calcio Podcast. A podcast devoted to Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you, as always, for listening. We've got another busy episode for you today. The Newswire has been relatively quiet with all the football being played, so we'll cover the latest news around Napoli and then we'll recap the latest action around Italy, England, and Spain. In part two, we'll review Napoli's match on Thursday against Atalanta, and in part three, we'll preview Napoli's next match on Sunday against Roma. So getting into the news, Napoli issued a press release explaining how season ticket holders will be refunded for the post-COVID home matches against Spal, Roma, Milan, Udinese, Sassuolo, and Lazio. Between July 1st and July 31st, fans can apply for a voucher through Ticket 1. The voucher will be good for 18 months. Existing season tickets will no longer be valid, even if matches are permitted to have spectators in the future, and tickets bought with the voucher can be transferred to third parties. In other news, we previously reported that the club is looking at doing their summer retreat before the start of the 2020-2021 campaign at Castel di Sangro, the mayor of Castel di Sangro spoke to Radio Kiss Kiss and indicated that they are working on a six-year agreement. This location seems to be preferred over the Di Mauro location because it's closer to home. Because of the new schedule, the upcoming retreat is expected to take place between August 28th and somewhere between September 6th and 10th. With the transfer window quickly approaching, the Mercato is really starting to heat up. On Tuesday, Victor Osimhen and his fiancée and his agents flew into Napoli with the permission of his club Lille to see the city and to meet with the club. The story was all over the Italian papers who were trying to guess exactly if he'll sign with Napoli and for how much. Osimhen reportedly met with Cristiano Giuntoli and Reno Gattuso on Tuesday and De Laurentiis on Wednesday. 
Napoli are supposedly close to reaching an agreement with the player, and then next they will need to speak with the club. Lille president Gerard Lopez was initially asking for 70 to 80 million euros because there was interest from England, but apparently that price has dropped significantly. That's not a huge shock to me. I think the asking price was too high in the first place, but Lopez did just sell Simone Pepe to Arsenal last year for 80 million euros. With COVID, even if there is interest for Osimhen, it won't be at that price. Also, we previously talked about how Liga lost 306 million euros in the 2018-2019 campaign, which was the season before this one. Then Liga canceled the current season, and I don't want to say they jumped the gun because that was a very responsible, proactive decision made in the midst of the biggest pandemic since the Spanish flu. Nevertheless, French clubs are going to be really hurting this year and possibly next, which means they'll have to sell off players, possibly at a discount to get their financials in order, and Lille are apparently looking to make up about 150 million euros. It's also because of the Simone Pepe negotiation that Napoli have a good relationship with Lille, and this sale could be the way for George Lopez to make up for allowing Arsenal to pull the rug out from under De Laurentiis' feet with that deal. Gianluca Di Marzio is reporting that the price is around 60 million euros for Osimhen, and that De Laurentiis would like to include Adam Unis in the deal, Multiple other sources are reporting the purchase price is 50 million plus bonuses, but there's also a 15% premium added to the purchase price that will go to Osimhen's previous club, Charleroi, so that could be how Di Marzio arrived at the 60 million valuation. There are also reports that Napoli could be paying around 105 million euros for both Osimhen and Brazilian defender Gabriel. With all this talk about Osimhen, it seems more and more likely that Napoli will sell Milik. We've talked a lot about Juventus' interest in him, but Giovanni Simeone apparently really likes Milik and wants to bring him to Atletico Madrid. If this is true, this could be huge for Napoli. First, it means we could get the 50 million euros that De Laurentiis wants for the poll. But more importantly, if Milik agrees to move to Spain, then we'd be able to cash in without improving the squad of our biggest competitor. Another player that is heavily linked to Napoli is Roma's Chenzig Under. Napoli supposedly valued the winger at 25 million euros, while Roma are looking to get more given their financial situation, and for that reason, they don't want a player in return. Now, it sounds to me that Under is really just a backup plan in case Napoli do not sign Jeremy Boga. In both the Osimhen and Under deals, it looks like Napoli are trying to take advantage of other clubs' financial troubles. That may sound a bit harsh, but I don't mean it to be. Napoli has done really well to keep its books in order, and this is an opportunity the club should take advantage of because of that. Under's agent, Fali Ramadani, has claimed that there are other big European clubs interested, but he won't name names, and that's a typical comment that an agent would make to drive the price up. Finally, Di Marzio is reporting that Napoli are seriously interested in Dominique Zobozlai, and that a meeting with his agent has been scheduled. Sobozlai has a 25 million euro release clause. Next, let's recap the action from Italy, England, and Spain. Lazio kicked off match day 29 on Tuesday against Torino. Torino actually scored the first goal of the match in the opening five minutes. Nicholas Nkulu was awarded a penalty after his shot hit Immobile in the hands from a few feet away. Once again, this terrible handball rule was enforced. I don't blame Immobile, there was no way to avoid this ball. While I think the rule was properly enforced, what I find really ridiculous is that he was shown a yellow card for this. I think it should be fine to award the penalty because the ball did hit his hand, 
without requiring a yellow card to be shown because there was clearly no intent to handle the ball. And that's really important for Lazio because it means Immobile will miss Lazio's next match against Milan. If you want to blame someone for the penalty, then blame Marco Parolo. He could have easily guided his header out for a corner kick, but instead he headed the ball back into play and toward the goal. Andrea Bolotti converted his second penalty and third goal in the last three matches. Now, you couldn't blame Immobile for his yellow, but you absolutely could blame Felipe Caicedo for his. Caicedo grabbed a handful of Ola Aida's shirt in Torino's half, which was completely unnecessary and in fact irresponsible. He will also miss the match against Milan, which means Joaquin Correa will be the only striker available for that Milan match for Lazio. After the Torino goal, Lazio dominated the match. The assist leader and the top scorer in the league linked up yet again. Luis Alberto played a perfectly weighted through ball for Immobile, who didn't get too much power on the shot, but it was well placed and got past an outstretched Sirigu. That was Alberto's 15th assist and Immobile's 29th goal on the season. Then in the 72nd minute, Marco Parolo made up for his mistake in the first half, putting Lazio up 2-1. This goal started with Jordan Lukaku, who did really well to get around Christian Ansaldi before playing the ball into the box. I thought Lukaku put in a strong performance off the bench, which I'm sure Laziali were happy to see with all the talk about their lack of depth. So like Juve did to Lazio the previous round, with the win, Lazio put pressure on Juve to win their match. Juve played against Genoa immediately after the Lazio match ended. Ronaldo was really on in this one and he seemed extra motivated to score. I'd say this was one of his better performances of the year. Despite the first half ending 0-0, Genoa never really stood a chance in this match. They were on their back heels the whole half. Mattia Perin made a couple of big saves on Ronaldo. You can make the case that Andrea Favilli deserved a second yellow in the first half and that Juve should have been awarded a penalty kick after Sumauro pushed De Ligt on the back on a corner kick. You knew it was only a matter of time before Juventus scored, and not only did they score, they scored three golazos that were all beautiful in their own way. Dybala scored first in the 50th minute. Dybala only needs two touches to do damage. On this goal, he took seven touches. The defenders were nowhere near tight enough. He had four defenders around him, and they were all jockeying. If you give Dybala that much space to get onto his left foot and take the shot then more often than not, you'll be collecting the ball from the back of your own goal. And as good as Perin was in the first half, he could have done better on this one. There was absolutely nothing Perin could have done on the Ronaldo and Douglas Costa goals, though. Ronaldo fired a rocket from well outside the box to score his 24th of the season. Douglas Costa scored my favorite of the three with a looping shot to the far post that just froze Perin. For Costa, this was his first goal since January of 2019 against Cavo. Andrea Pinamonte pulled one back for Genoa, which was the first goal that Juventus have conceded since Italian football returned, but it was too little too late. This one finished 3-1 for Juventus, and Juventus continues to improve every week, and Sadi is even getting meaningful minutes from Rabiot and Bernardeschi. Third place Inter played against last place Brescia. Inter absolutely slaughtered Brescia, winning 6-0. This was exactly what Interisti and their hearts needed after two stressful matches against Asuolo and Parma. Conte rested a number of starters in this one. Lukaku, Eriksen, Kandreva, and Brozovic all started on the bench, but it didn't really matter. Other than Tonali and maybe Alfredo Donnarumma, Inter's backups are better than Brescia's starters. Ashley Young put Inter ahead with a skillful volley to the far post. Alexis Sanchez doubled Inter's lead in the 20th minute from the penalty spot after Victor Moses was fouled in the box for the second time in the match. Victor Moses had an excellent match. 
Obviously, this was a weaker opponent who gave him plenty of space to run, but I think he benefited from starting as opposed to his usual role off the bench. D'Ambrosio put Inter ahead 3-0 just before the break, against some pretty awful defending. The second half was more of the same. Gagliardini, Eriksson, and Kandreva all got in on the action, and there's not much analysis to be done for a match like this. With the win, Inter remain 8 points back of Juve. Atalanta defeated Napoli 2-0. We'll cover that in greater detail in Part 2. Roma took on Udinese, coming off a dreadful performance against Milan, and they didn't fare much better in this one. We'll talk more about that match in Part 3 when we preview Napoli's upcoming match against Roma. 7th place Milan were coming off a big 2-0 win over Roma and had won both of their matches since Serie A resumed. They visited the Paolo Mazza in what should have been an easy 3 points against a spa club that will be relegated. This was a wild match, one that was far more entertaining than the one against Roma. Spal surprisingly opened the scoring in the 13th minute off a corner kick. This was a weird, ugly goal. Gabia appeared to handle the ball twice, first on Patania's flick-on and then on Paqueta's clearance. I don't know if the Milan players thought the penalty was going to be given because they all were standing around. Spal kept playing and Mattia Valotti poked his shot past Gigio Donnarumma. Milan suffered another blow shortly after that when Sami Castileo pulled up, chasing the ball towards the goal. He was subbed off with what appeared to be a hamstring injury. Then, just after the water break, 38-year-old Sergio Flocchetti rolled back the clock and scored his first of the season with a stunning volley from 30 yards out that dipped just under the bar. Donnarumma had absolutely no chance on this shot, and Spal were surprisingly ahead 2-0. In the 37th minute, Milan thought they had pulled one back after Chalanoglu finished a well-worked play, but VAR reviewed the goal and found that Antti Rebic was a hair offside. VAR returned the favor in the 43rd minute when a review of a Marco D'Alessandro tackle on Teo Hernandez resulted in a red card being shown to the spell midfielder. Teo Hernandez, by the way, wasn't his best in this one, and he was subbed off in the 65th minute. Zlatan Ibrahimovic made his return from a calf injury, replacing Rebic in the 65th minute as well. The second half just got worse and worse for Spal. First in the 79th minute, Rafael Leao pulled one back after a really poor attempt at a clearance by Nedad Tomovic. A few minutes after that, Spal manager Luigi Di Biagio was shown a second yellow and was forced to leave the match. And then in added time, Francesco Vicari's clearance of Alexis Sailmaker's cross found the back of his own goal. Even though Milan had no business taking a point from this match, this was not a draw that felt like a win, it still felt like a loss. And that opened the door for Verona to regain some ground on Milan for that final Europa League spot. Verona took on Parma, which was the game I was looking forward to the most and it did not disappoint. Parma opened the scoring on an excellent individual effort from Dejan Kulusevski. Rachmani got beat on this play, but he otherwise had an excellent match. He nearly scored in the first half, but his header hit the bar. He also nearly won a penalty kick when his shot deflected off a Parma defender's hand, but the penalty was not given, and I think that actually was the right decision. And in the second half, Kulusevski was in one-on-one, and Rachmani tracked back and made an important block just as Kulusevski cut into his preferred right foot. After the Kulusevski goal, Verona took control of the match and were eventually awarded a penalty when Bruno Alves supposedly fouled Samuel Di Carmina in the box. I thought this was a pretty weak call. There was no obstruction on the play. Di Carmina sold it. If you watch the replay, pay attention to the direction Di Carmina falls. If he was fouled, his body would have gone the other way. Nonetheless, the penalty was given and Di Carmina converted to level the score. 
Verona started the second half strong as well. Zakani gave Verona the lead in the 53rd minute with a well-placed shot from outside the box that bent towards the far post and bounced just short of the keeper before ending up in the back of the goal. The goal forced Parma to play more aggressively, and when they did, they looked much better. Ricardo Galliolo equalized in the 64th minute. Once again, Kulusevski was involved in the play. He beat his man to get a shot off, which was stopped by Silvestri, but the rebound fell for Galliolo in front of a wide-open net. From that point on, the match was fairly even. In the 82nd minute, substitute Matteo Piscina scored for Verona to make the score 3-2, which is how this one ended. And it was good to see Verona get the three points. I've developed a bit of a fondness for this club. I thought they deserved more than one point from their last two matches, which were the loss to Napoli and the last minute draw to Sassuolo. I love the way Juric has this team playing. They're very organized. They move well off the ball. They don't overcomplicate things. They make the simple passes instead of forcing the play, which means they don't concede possession easily. So with that win, Verona are back within two points of Milan in seventh place. Another intriguing matchup was Fiorentina versus Sassuolo, and Sassuolo won this one 3-1. Federico Chiesa returned for this match after missing the Lazio match due to suspension, and he nearly opened the scoring in the match, but he was denied by an excellent save by Drogovski. Sassuolo's Gregoire de Frel scored his first of two goals, this one from the penalty spot in the 22nd minute. There was a bit of controversy on this play as Fiorentina made claims for a penalty just before Sassuolo countered. It wasn't given, Sassuolo countered with Jeremy Boga, and then Sassuolo was awarded the penalty. Sassuolo controlled the play for most of the first half, then just as Fiorentina began to impose themselves, they got caught out on the counterattack, once again led by Boga. Juricic actually cut off Boga to play a through ball to Defrel, and Defrel put away his second of the match. Fiorentina played well in the final half hour of the match, and Cutrona did pull one back late in the match, but the match was already lost at that point. Fiorentina had a number of chances but failed to convert, and this is something that was discussed on the latest episode of the Serie A show with John Solano, Nima Tavali-Ruzzari, and Chloe Beresford. And Chloe, who's a big Viola supporter, pointed out that this has been an issue all year. The team is excellent in the build-up and creating opportunities, but they lack a clinical finisher. Fiorentina's joint top scorers each have only six goals. In Serie B, round 32 is being played while we record this episode, so we'll do a full recap of that on our next episode, because the next round of Serie B is not until July 10th. In Serie C, the promotion playoff commenced with four matches, Alessandria, Siena, Feral Pisalo, and Triestina all got buys to the second round after their opponents elected not to participate in the playoff. Four of the matches that were played finished nil-nil. Novara drew Albino Lefe, Padova drew San Benedetessa, Catanzaro drew Teramo, and my Avellino drew Ternana. In the case of a tie, the higher seed advances, so Novara, Padova, Catanzaro, and Ternana all advance, and Catania defeated Francavilla 3-2. The relegation playoffs were completed on Tuesday. The six additional teams to be relegated are Pianese, Gianna Emigno, Ravenna, Arzignano, Rende, and Bichelia. In England, Carlo Ancelotti's Everton continued to roll with an impressive win over third place Leicester City. That gave Chelsea the opportunity to move into third, but they blew it, losing to West Ham 3 2. Manchester United defeated Brighton 3 0, and Wolves beat Aston Villa 1 0, so they both gained ground on Chelsea. So after Liverpool and City, the top of the table is pretty tight. Leicester are on 55 points, Chelsea are on 54 points, and United and Wolves are on 52 points. Sheffield United continued their impressive season, defeating Tottenham 2-1. 
Arsenal got their second win and clean sheet in a row, defeating Norwich 4-0. At the bottom of the table, Watford lost to Southampton 3-1. So the bottom five at the moment are West Ham on 30 points, Watford on 28 points, Villa and Bournemouth on 27 points, and Norwich have 21 points. Rounding out the week, Manchester City defeated Liverpool 4-0 in a meaningless match. In Spain, Barcelona dropped more points, drawing Atletico Madrid 0-0. Real Madrid defeated Getafe 1-0, so they now have a 4-point lead over Barcelona. Sevilla defeated Leganes 3-0 to pull within 2 points of Atleti. Villarreal defeated Betis 2-0 to stay 2 points back of Sevilla, and to move back ahead of Getafe, who lost to Real Madrid. Real Sociedad pulled within 2 points of Getafe, defeating Espanyol 2-1. At the bottom of the table, Mallorca got a huge 5-1 win over Celta Vigo to reduce the gap for the final relegation spot to 5 points, and this came only 3 games after Celta Vigo beat Alavesh 6-0. Speaking of Alavesh, they lost 2-0 to Granada, Levante drew Valladolid 0-0, and Osasuna beat Ibar 2-0. That'll do for part 1, in part 2 we'll review Napoli's loss to Atalanta. So let's review Atalanta versus Napoli. And now we're here to enjoy what is hopefully going to be a cracking game of football between two sides on the up, two sides playing some really good football. Rino Gattuso's Napoli as well, really back to their best. Quick, sharp football. Atalanta, of course, we know they play excellent football, probably the best football in Italy. It's Atalanta who get the game underway. Off goes uh, Ospina. Unlucky. Brave man. And he's... Uh, unfortunately, he got caught in the wrong place, just above the eye. And so Merritt is now on to replace him. And that's... Uh... Well, that is the end of the first half then. And it finishes goalless, rather surprisingly. Not too many chances at either end to open them up. It's uh, Napoli who now get the second half underway. That's a lovely ball. Castagna now has space to look up. Well, well intercepted by Fabian Ruiz. Gomez. Good ball in! And the header from Pazalic. Atalanta with the lead. Nicely done, 1-2, space is opening up now, Castagna, can he get a cross away, he does, Derun inside, it's come to the far post, and it's two for Atalanta, Gossens with the strike. That's it, 
the referee has blown the full-time whistle here in Bergamo. Atalanta have defeated Napoli by two goals to nil. The goals coming early on in this second half. Pazalic on 47 minutes, Gossens on 55, and that was enough. So as you heard, Napoli lost this match 2-0. Let's start with the lineups. Gasparini made three changes to the squad that started against Udinese. Atalanta lined up in their usual 3-4-2-1 with Golini in goal. The back line was unchanged with Toloi, Caldara, and Jim City. We were expecting Palomino to start over Caldara, though they were subbed for each other in the 72nd minute. In the midfield, Castagna started over Hatabor, which we thought could happen because we know how much Hatabor and Freuler have been playing. Darun, Freuler, and Gozens completed the midfield. Pasolic moved from the midfield to the front three in place of Malinovsky, who was suspended for this match. Duvan Zapata and Papu Gomez completed the trident. Gattuso didn't really have any surprises in his starting 11. Ospina started in goal but had to be subbed off in the 30th minute after colliding with Mario Rui and cutting himself above the eye. Fortunately, it looks like Ospina is going to be fine. He did make a really nice save on Papu Gomez earlier in the match before he was eventually taken out. The back line was Mario Rui, Koulibaly, Maximovic, and Di Lorenzo. I thought Koulibaly and Maximovic did a fantastic job of shutting down Duvan Zapata in this match. Those two have just been phenomenal since Italian football resumed. Zapata really didn't have much of an impact on the match. Koulibaly didn't have a perfect performance by any means. I'll get to his role in the second goal in a bit. He also missed a couple of clear headers in this game, though I generally don't fault defenders too much when they miss headers in the attacking half. Rui and Di Lorenzo had their share of accountability for the goals as well. Di Lorenzo didn't seem like his usual self to me. He made a few wayward passes in the first half, including one that he kicked straight out of bounds. In the midfield was Deme, Fabian, and Zielinski. Out of those three, I thought Zielinski was the only one who put in a strong performance. And up top was Insigne, Mertens, and Calejon. Milik replaced Mertens and Lozano replaced Insigne. And I was really surprised to see Insigne come off instead of Politano only a few minutes after the second goal. And I wonder if Gattuso essentially realized that Napoli was not going to come back and decided to rest Insigne for the Roma match. Lozano did look good once again, and he may be playing his way into Gattuso's good book. Finally, Politano was replaced in the 73rd minute by Jose Callejon, and neither player made much of a contribution in this match. Before we get to the goals, I want to talk about the first half a little bit. I was really impressed with Napoli's play. They started very positively, they weren't sitting back, they actually looked like they were playing a hybrid of the ultra-conservative style we've seen against the bigger clubs and the more aggressive play we saw against Spal. When Atalanta had the ball, everyone dropped behind the ball, but Atalanta did not have much of the ball in the first half. Napoli defended high, they made it very difficult for Atalanta to develop any sort of rhythm or flow. It felt a bit like Napoli were doing to Atalanta what Atalanta typically do to their opponents. Some have suggested that for the first time we saw Atalanta deploy a different tactic by sitting back and letting Napoli come to them versus their normal high-press style of defending. I personally don't believe that's what happened here. I think Napoli were just the better side in the first half. What would justify that point, though, is that Atalanta are probably more fit than any other club in the league. When we interviewed Dan Pezzotta of the Atalanta podcast and the Atalanta Las Vegas supporters group, Dan mentioned how Gasparini trains these players, 
and that Papu jokes that game day is like a vacation, so perhaps Atalanta were letting Napoli tire out before they went after it. At the start of the second half, Napoli looked like a completely different squad. They were immediately put on their heels. Atalanta scored two quick goals in the opening 10 minutes of the second half, which was really the only part of the game that Napoli didn't look very good. So let's start with the first goal. Before I get to what went wrong with Napoli on this goal, you do have to tip your hat to Papu Gomez, who was the man of the match for me. When we spoke to Dan, he talked about how Udinese's defending forced Papu to drop deeper to create opportunities, and that's exactly what he did in this match with great success, particularly during that 10-minute period. Papu made two excellent passes on this goal. First, he played a delicate little chip pass over the Lorenzo and Rui to find Castagna. Then, after Atalanta regained possession, he played an excellent cross into an unmarked Pasolic. There was plenty of blame to go around on Napoli's side. First, I don't know how Di Lorenzo ended up on the left side and Rui on the right. It looks like they got switched on the Atalanta corner kick just before the goal. But Napoli cleared the corner and Atalanta played the ball all the way back to Golini. So Di Lorenzo and Rui had plenty of time to get back into position. But for some reason, they stayed switched. And to me, that was ultimately the main reason for the goal. After Fabian intercepted Castagna's cross, he had two opportunities to clear the ball, and both times he tried to do cheeky little touch passes instead of just clearing the ball to safety. The first pass came off an unexpected Di Lorenzo. Back to the positioning, it looked like Di Lorenzo expected Fabian to clear the ball and started jogging back towards his natural right-back position. Fabian recovered the ball and again tried a cheeky little pass instead of clearing it, and this time the pass was intercepted by Remo Freuler. Di Lorenzo was now caught in the middle of the field defending neither wing, so when Papu received the pass on the wing, there was no one there. Koulibaly had to step up to defend Papu, which left Mario Rui and Maksimovic to defend Duvan, Pazilic, and Gozins, who made a run at the far post. Mario Rui decided to defend none of them, though even if he did pick Pazilic, he probably would have lost that aerial duel. The second goal was an excellent team goal by Atalanta. They made eight passes, almost all of them were one-touch passes before a completely unmarked Gozins found the back of the goal. Again, Napoli's defense did not look very good on this play. On this goal, I put most of the blame on Mario Rui and Koulibaly. I don't blame Rui for getting beat by the passes, but if you watch this play again, look at how casually he jogs back instead of falling Castagna down the right wing. That forces Demme to cover for Rui instead of defending in the middle of the pitch. Koulibaly got caught flat-footed on the exchange between Toloi and Castagna. For some reason, even though Demme was covering Rui on the right wing, Koulibaly started running towards the wing instead of following Toloi into the box. And this is why Toloi was wide open and why Napoli were caught outnumbered in the box because Demme and Koulibaly were both caught out of position. I personally think Toloi was trying to shoot there and missed so badly that the ball went to Gozins, so Atalanta were a bit lucky in that sense but for how well they moved the ball, the goal was certainly deserved. After that 10-minute spell, Napoli were the better squad again. They had a number of half chances that they just could not put away. Lozano had a few chances, Fabian took a shot from long range that he just missed wide of the goal, and Koulibaly missed one of those open headers. Eventually, Napoli ran out of steam against a very fit Atalanta squad. Gattuso was furious after this match. He said Atalanta didn't start all that brilliantly, it was us that made the mistakes on their goals. We had the game in our hands and we scored the first goal for them. In the first half we did well, but we made mistakes in the final third. 
That said, I don't think this will impact Napoli's momentum. There's certainly no shame in losing to a club like Atalanta. If anything, I think this will only motivate them to play even harder. So that's our review of Napoli-Atalanta. In part 3, we'll preview Napoli's next match against Roma. Let's close the pod with a preview of Napoli's match against Roma on Sunday. Let's start with Roma's most recent match against Udinese. As I mentioned earlier, the Giallorossi were coming off just a dreadful performance against Milan, probably their worst of the season. Meanwhile, Udinese were coming off a really strong performance against Atalanta, even though they lost the match. In that match, we got a glimpse of Kevin Lasagna's pace and what he is capable of. Nikola Kalinic started this match after Edin Dzeko started against Milan. Kalinic is 32 years old and Dzeko is 34, so in all likelihood these two will alternate at the starting striker position for the balance of the season. Rodrigo De Paul returned for Udinese after missing the Atalanta match due to a suspension, and he had a really good game. Even though he missed a couple of scoring opportunities, he was heavily involved in the match and played an important role in both of Udinese's goals. Right off the kickoff, Udinese seemed to be a step quicker and immediately applied pressure to Roma. Udinese opened the scoring in the 12th minute, Lasagna picked up the ball in his own half and turned on the Jets. He absolutely burned Federico Fazio on the left wing before picking out an unmarked Rodrigo De Paul in front of the goal. De Paul mishit the volley, but his shot fell perfectly for Lasagna and he scored his third goal in his last two matches. Lasagna nearly scored again in the 22nd minute, but Mirante made an excellent save. Mirante was actually anticipating a shot to the far post and had to reach back to make this save, which was really, really excellent. Roma's midfield leaves a lot to be desired. I thought the commentator put it really well when he said, Kolarov is far too often having to look for the incisive pass, occasionally by virtue of the Hollywood ball from the left back just because there's no movement, no fluidity, which is not what we're used to seeing from Roma. Things only got worse for Roma in the 30th minute when captain Diego Perotti was shown a straight red for putting his studs into Rodrigo Bacau. I had to watch this one a few times. In real time, it looked like Perotti was just running in stride and Bacau stepped in his path, but on the replay, it does look like Perotti stretched out and to the side. Ironically, Roma's best spell of the half came immediately after the red card. Brian Cristante's shot took a deflection and hit the bar. 
Shortly after that, Musso denied Chenzig Under's long-range effort that was curling in toward the goal. I thought Under had a good half, but he was replaced by Henrik Mkhitaryan at the break. Roma looked much better at the start of the second half. Carlos Perez had a couple of scoring opportunities denied by Musso and a third that was blocked by the Udinese back line. With Roma pressing for an equalizer while playing a man down, Udinese had their fair share of scoring opportunities on the counterattack. In the 78th minute, Udinese took advantage of one of those opportunities with Nesterovsky doubling Udinese's lead. This was a huge win for Udinese in the race to avoid relegation. Meanwhile, Roma are now 12 points back of Atalanta, who sit in that final Champions League spot. Roma were fortunate that Napoli lost to Atalanta to remain 3 points back of Roma. Milan wasted a huge opportunity to gain ground by drawing Spal, so they are now 5 points back of Roma, and Verona are 1 point back of Milan. So that brings us to the Napoli match on Sunday. It's really difficult to draw any conclusions about Roma after this match, considering they played most of it with 10 men. In fact, after Roma's first three matches, it's really difficult to know which squad will show up to this match. We've seen three very different performances from Roma since Serie A resumed. First, they beat Sampdoria 2-1 with two incredible volleys from Ed and Dzeko, but Sampdoria are certainly one of the weaker clubs in the league and perhaps even weaker post-COVID, so I'm not sure how much you can take away from that match. Then we had the Milan match where Roma simply did not show up, and then there was this match against Udinese. Even though they were a man down, I thought Roma's defending was quite poor. They often looked out of shape. We also saw Roma struggle to defend Udinese's pace, particularly from Kevin Lasagna and Rodrigo De Paul. That's certainly a weakness that Napoli's wingers can exploit. As I mentioned in part 2, I don't think Napoli's loss to Atalanta will impact their momentum or their desire to win. Gattuso has spoken about how this season will be used as preparation for next season. Gattuso was furious after the Atalanta match. He said Napoli scored the first goal for Atalanta with their mistakes, so you can be sure Gattuso and therefore Napoli will be motivated to get three points against Roma. Roma's midfield was pretty absent in the Udinese match, which wasn't helped by the fact that Jordan Bertu was suspended for the Udinese match and Diego Perotti picked up that red card. So on that note, let's get to the lineups. Fonseca uses a 4-2-3-1 formation. Fonseca has been rotating so much that this starting 11 is really difficult to predict. In similar circumstances, I would have suggested that the squad Fonseca ran out against Milan is more likely, while the squad against Udinese was the B team to provide rest ahead of the Napoli match, but Roma were so bad in that Milan game that I just don't know. Antonio Mirantes seems to be the preferred option in goal. I'm going to go with the same back four that started against Udinese. Chris Smalling has been a fixture at the back. Gianluca Mancini was not in the squad against Udinese because of a gastrointestinal issue, so I imagine he'll miss this one too, or at best he'll be on the bench. Alexander Kolarov and Bruno Perez have been getting most of the starts at left and right back respectively, and I think Federico Fazio will start over Roger Ibanez. I would not be shocked though if Leonardo Spinazzola started over Alexander Kolarov, and to an extent if Davide Santon started over Bruno Perez, who's played in back-to-back matches. Roma's midfield is really hard to predict. Starting with those holding midfielders, we've mentioned Jordan Vertu did not play last match due to the suspension. Since he will be well rested, I expect Vertu to start, which will be good to see since Napoli have been linked to him as well. Ex-Napoli player Amadou Diawara has struggled in his last couple of matches. Meanwhile, I thought Brian Cristante played well against Udinese, so I think he'll play in that role beside Vertu. The attacking midfielders are even harder to predict. We've seen Fonseca start seven different players in those roles 
in Roma's four matches since the restart. We know Perotti won't play because of the red card he picked up. Fonseca appears to be playing Justin Clivert every other match, so I expect him to start at left wing. Mkhitaryan came off the bench against Udinese, so I think we'll see him start in the middle. And on the right, Carlos Perez has been one of the bright spots for Roma in all of this, so I think he will start on the right. We talked about Napoli's interest in Chenzigunder, so I wouldn't be surprised if Roma replaced Clivert with Under at some point to showcase the Turkish winger's talent. And up top, Edin Dzeko will play at striker. For Napoli, after David Ospina left last game with a head injury, Alex Meret will almost certainly start this one. The reports are that Ospina's injury is not serious, so he should suit up for the match, but I don't expect him to start. At the back, Koulibaly and Maksimovic have started all five matches for Napoli since football returned. Gattuso seems to be rotating the left and right fullbacks quite a bit. I think for this one we'll see Elsie Kusai and Giovanni Di Lorenzo, but it's quite possible that Gattuso moves Kusai to the right back and plays Rui or even maybe Gulam at left back. And who knows, maybe we'll even see Kostas Manolas make an appearance to give one of Koulibaly and Maksimovic a rest. In the midfield, I expect Lobotka to give them a rest and Elmas to give Fabian a rest, as Fabian has played in back-to-back matches, and I think Zielinski will be the third midfielder. And up top, I think we'll see Insignia at left wing. Insignia came off in the 58th minute against Atalanta, so he should be fit to play. At right wing, I think Callejon would start over Matteo Politano, and in the middle, I expect to see Milik start over Mertens. Lozano has been good in his last few appearances, so I wouldn't be surprised to see him replacing Signe on a more regular basis. In terms of the betting odds, Napoli are just about even money. Roma pay 2.6 to 1 and the draw pays 2.5 to 1. For my prediction, I think Napoli will win this match comfortably. I think these two clubs are heading in opposite directions at the moment. Napoli will be eager to get back into the win column and I may be falling for a big trap here, But until Roma shows me something to change my mind, I can't help but expect another lackluster performance from them. I think Napoli match up really well against Roma. Roma needed two spectacular finishes from Dzeko just to beat Sampdoria. We've seen what Napoli centre-backs have done to the likes of Romelu Lukaku, Cristiano Ronaldo, and Duvan Zapata. Roma's midfielders have been providing no service to the attackers and I don't expect them to in this match either. I was pleasantly surprised to see that Napoli can control the play and dictate the pace of the match even against a club like Atalanta, so I expect another positive performance but this time for the full 90. Finally, I think Insigne is going to have his way with Roma's back line. We saw what Kevin Lasagna did with his pace. Insigne and Callejon, assuming he starts, are both getting older but still have a good amount of pace left in them. So I'm going to go with Napoli to win 3-0 on a brace from Arkadouj Milik. And I'll give the other goal to Lorenzo Insigne because he deserved the goal against Spal and eventually he is going to score. So that's my preview of Napoli versus Roma. That'll also do it for episode 23. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with your friends, give us a 5-star rating, and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. As always, if you have any questions or if you'd like me to cover anything in particular, you can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fischetti5 or you can find the podcast at Forza Napoli Pod. You can also find my work at worldfootballindex.com. We'll talk to you again after the Roma match, but until then, I'm Joe Fischetti, Forza Napoli Sempre.
The right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.